Like, have you had those experiences with athletes where you think things are going great and they think otherwise? Yes. Or vice versa? <laughs> like, oh, yes. it's awesome. You're like, dude, like, you're just not, like, you're not getting better at the rate that I was anticipating you to. And they're like, oh, but I feel awesome. Like, all right, that's great. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you a lifelong learner? Someone who is always looking to tweak and refine their craft? If so, this episode is for you. Whether it's best practices for consuming new information, reflecting on past experiences, or using the mentorship process to deepen our understanding, a commitment to lifelong learning is something that every single one of us can benefit from. And that's why I asked former IFAST intern, PT student, and now physical therapist at Resilient Physical Therapy, Mike Reinhardt, to come on this week's show. Mike's thirst for knowledge is something that has always set him apart, and the strategies we discuss in this episode can benefit trainers, coaches, and rehab professionals at any stage in the game. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, as someone that's always looking to sharpen the saw and get a little bit better every day, I love talking about learning and how we can refine the art of learning itself. So in this episode, we're going to cover the topic of learning and much, much more. We'll start by talking about Mike's background and how a family of scientists combined with four-hour weight room sessions after school forged him into the person that he is today. We'll talk about how developing as a coach first helped him become a better physical therapist. We'll talk about the role and value of mentorship and what Mike's learned from being on both sides of that coin. And finally, we'll talk about the role he sees technology playing in rehab and reconditioning as well as some of the limitations you'll see there as well. Now, regardless of whether you've been in this field for one year or 20, I think you'll be able to take the information on learning and mentorship and apply it right now, today. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I will do the whole week that was kind of weekly recap next week. The kids are still out of school. There's a lot going on around here. Team Robertson just has uh, a lot of balls in the air right now. So we'll cover that next week. But one thing I did want to do today is kind of put a bow on 2022 uh, and just say thank you so much for your support from the bottom of my heart. Like when I started this podcast six, seven years ago now, I honestly thought I'd do 50, maybe 100 episodes tops. I thought, oh man, I'll never find more than 100 people I want to interview or I'll get bored with it or you'll get bored with it, right? You won't want to listen to it anymore. And to know that this year was our best year ever is just mind-blowing to me. We crossed 2 million total downloads, which I think is pretty impressive. We almost crossed 50K downloads in one month, which again, man, that's just crazy to me to think that that many of you are into the podcast, that you're enjoying the content that much. So, you know, as we kind of put a wrap on 2022, as we look forward to 2023, I just wanted to say thank you. Again, I appreciate your support and your loyalty more than you will ever know. And with that being said, I'm really excited for 2023. We've got some great sponsors lined up. I've got some amazing, amazing practitioners, scientists, researchers, 
coaches, trainers, PTs lined up already that I can't wait for you to hear them and to just share in their expertise because like this is what this show is all about, right? It's like trying to find the best of the best and trying to continue to sharpen our own swords and get a little bit better at our craft, whatever that craft may be, coaching, training, physical therapy. So rambling now, but I just want to say thank you so much for your support. I love and appreciate you. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome new episode with my guy, Mike Reinhardt. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insider's list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Mike, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on, catch up with you a little bit. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first off, I have to say thank you. Um, I've literally been listening to your podcast for many years now. So to be to be a guest on it is, is quite the opportunity. And I, I want to thank you for that. Of course. Um, but like, as for myself personally, so I'm currently a performance physical therapist at Resilient PT. Um, I'm in one of the the New Jersey location in Chatham, but there's a couple of locations elsewhere. Um, we work with everyone from fitness enthusiasts, weekend warriors, those dealing with like your typical aches and pains, all the way up through youth, collegiate, and professional athletes. Um, the beauty of it is honestly, we're consistently working with people from different walks of life with different challenges. And we kind of have this ability to use a broad skill set um, because of these differences in populations. Um, in addition to this, I'm also a huge proponent of uh, teaching and mentorship. So I'm also a co-founder and an active participant in R2B Academy. Um, our whole purpose is to give continuing education offerings that kind of blend the rehab and performance continuum together. Um, so I've been an active part of that. I think it's been hard to believe it's almost been three years now, I want to say, wow. at least two. So time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. And talk to me, like what got you into this space? How did you get started in the world of physical preparation? 
Mm -hmm. So I, I had kind of the archetypical story of like, I was a freshman in high school who was relatively undersized. Like I enjoyed sports, but I wasn't like super athletic. I ever had been. And I fell in love with the weight room. Like I was that kid freshman year who's like, Hey, I want to put on a couple pounds. I want to get a little bit bigger. I want to look better. And it just so happened that the school I went to had a bus that went to a local fitness center. So I would literally go there after school and I would spend three to four hours there because that's the time my mom could pick me up. So three to four days a week, I'd go there for three to four hours. And as you know, you can only work out so much. So right. like I'd started like picking the brains of some of the trainers and I'd start like actually making somewhat, I wouldn't say intelligent, but like better programs and like followed something a little more concise. So freshman year is when I started dabbling. And then as the years went on, my my love of like training, coaching, strength conditioning, and then performance just kind of grew from that. So it was kind of like the... the uh, the archetypical tale of like you start like it's a passion and it becomes your it becomes your your profession. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. I don't think I ever knew that. <laughs> I don't think I ever knew that. Like that would be wild. I couldn't imagine being in high school and just getting dropped off at a gym for three to four hours. It, now, granted, was... we were in the '90s, so we would have done really <laughs> dumb stuff. You probably did way smarter stuff than we did. Uh, it, it was great because it was like the last bus stop, so it was like a forty minute bus ride, and then I was there till like six thirty at night, like every night. It was oh great. Oh my gosh, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. And then, last but not least, talk to me about you know this this career path of yours, right? Because mm -hmm. you start off banging weights after school in this gym, and now you're uh, a DPT, correct? So talk yep. to me about that process and that path that you've been on. Yep. So let, let me kind of preface it by saying I come from a very smart family of scientists. Um, I, I often forget this, but like my grandfather was a nuclear physicist. Um, he worked in the military. He was actually an active part from my understanding, like the creation of, I think it was a hydrogen bomb or something that I know nothing about. Wow. Um, so, so again, like he, he was, he was immersed in that. My father was a professor at RIT for a number of years. He taught chemistry and, um, and a couple other like physics related classes. My mom's a clinical psychologist. And my brother's a really smart uh, software and hardware engineer who works out in California. Wow. So like I, I kind of come from that pedigree of like very science minded individuals. And then there's me who's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nerdy meathead. <laughs> um, but, but the reason I say that is like, I think part of it is I have that pedigree of coming from like a scientific mindset and like everyone makes fun of me. Like I'm very analytical. I like to ask deeper questions. I like to problem solve. And I think a lot of that is just kind of in my genetics and it's kind of how my family has always been. So mm -hmm. to, to go from there, like when I started in high school and I got immersed in some of the like just general training like how do i get stronger how do i get bigger that led me into personal training which led me into fit group fitness which led me into i got my exercise science degree from university at buffalo so that took me four years and at the end of the four years as you know i spent a four-month internship with with you at ifast and that was very much a uh, not to toot your own horn but like very much a, a life-altering experience where you're exposed to this like almost like panacea of information and thought processes. And I think a lot of it, like looking back on it retrospectively, it's almost the, I learned how to learn versus just the information I got. Like I loved the information. I loved the, the knowledge that was kind of like, like provided to us, but it's more so as I'm sure we'll talk about later in this episode, like it was more so I learned how to learn. And it was also that mindset and that culture of like, you never know everything. Like yeah. no one has all the answers. Like no matter what level of this profession you're in, you can always learn more and you can always ask better questions. So that kind of stemmed me into my three years of grad school for physical therapy, where I'd had that excellent background working with you and Bill and all the guys at IFAST. And then I started applying it in my own like strength conditioning, part-time work, in my, my, my own coaching, my own training work. And then it kind of built up from there where I had the three years of like very in-depth physical therapy stuff. 
which is everything. Like you're a jack of all trades. You've got to be able to do orthopedics. You've got to be able to do some neuro. You've got to be able to do some hospital work. Mm -hmm. So you're not really getting in-depth sports type stuff, but you're getting enough of the backbone that you can then apply some of these more like coaching, physical preparation concepts over time. So then that led into my very first job out of PT school where I did a little bit of travel work. And then I started a place called Rehab to Perform, which at the time, I think I was like maybe the sixth PT that was hired by the company. Um, It was very much like an early on... um, uh, startup at that point, the yeah. uh, CEO and founder Josh Funk and Zach Baker were incredible, incredibly influential from a a PT mentorship from a business side of things, and they very much brought all of us kind of under their wing and, and told us kind of very transparent, like here's what we're doing, here's what we're trying to create, and they they had a model that they wanted to kind of expand to improve, kind of like raise the ground of the physical therapy realm, especially mm-hmm. from like a, a sports rehab side of things. Yeah. So I worked there for. I think it was four years. I was a clinic director there for almost three years. I think it was like two and close to three. Um, so during that time, like I was blessed with a tremendous amount of students. I had a lot of um, internship experience that I got to work with and I got to even do some onboarding for some of our new PTs. So I was extremely lucky to be involved, like kind of in that position. Yeah. That's where the R2P Academy stemmed from. And then more recently, I've transitioned over to Resilient PT um, just from a standpoint of trying to kind of improve my own cognitive bandwidth and keep getting, keep improving, keep growing myself, um, kind of stemmed that more recent change. So now I'm, now I'm here and now I'm talking to you. So (laughs) I love it, man. I love it. Well, let's dive in, man, because I feel like there's so many topics I want to cover with you. And one thing that you mentioned before the call was how important you felt your background in coaching was when you became a PT. So I'd love to just hear you elaborate on that a little bit. Why was that so impactful for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I've just become a very strong believer that being a good coach and just being an all around good human being is kind of the background of what it takes to be a great PT. Um, If you look at it from like an industry standpoint, we try to draw these like very clear delineations between like rehab and performance. We try to say like, there's a cutoff, you're done with this, you're going to that. But it's it's just not that simple. Um, We have to kind of accept that there's a large amount of gray area. And there's a lot of overlap. So in order to be a great PT, I think you also have to be very well versed in training and some degree of performance just to understand how our body adapts and how we can how we can provide it with like a, a stress bolus that's hopefully going to give us a desirable adaptation. So if you think of it from a standpoint of if I'm versed in at least the basic principles of strength conditioning, I can make the argument that it's easier to reverse engineer somebody's process to get them back to where they want to be versus if you're really, really good at the stuff in the beginning, that's that's excellent, that's necessary. But it's almost like you run out of steam and you're like, oh crap, what do I do now? It's like, okay, they can walk normally, they can squat, they can do like this body weight competence type stuff. But now I need to get them back to sprinting, high level change of direction, maximal effort type competitive competitive realm type activities. Yep. So now it's like, if I already have that SNC background, even if I'm starting with somebody who's like, say, day one post-op or just had an acute injury, I already have this like mental model of how I need to get them back to where they were before. And I can just take a couple steps back and say, well, they can't sprint yet. But yes, well, guess what? We can do some like extensive pogos or, hey, they can't do that. But at least we can do some like focal like tissue loading strategies. So like and I'm nerdy about this stuff, as I know you are, too. But yep. I like I've gotten better at laying out the whole process and kind of saying, like, this is where we need to go just like your long-term periodization. Like this is where we need to go in the future, but this is where we are now. And these are the things that we're capable of doing. So where do we start? And I think like having that, like, again, I'm a meathead, like having that like general macro, like macro plan or almost like an annual plan of like, all right, we've got nine months to get you back to sport. What do we do? And I think that's like becomes a, a template. And then you just build that out from there. 
So I think like having that and also just having some basic like first principles of what training means to me helps me with my clients, whether it's in the rehab realm or the performance realm. Like you can think of basic things like progressive overload. Like if you understand that, it's like, all right, well, sometimes you have to do the same stuff, but you just increase the relative demands, whether it's volume, whether it's intensity, like th those are things that as coaches is just kind of innate to us. But unfortunately, I don't think that's super well taught in a lot of programs unless you've had that hands-on experience. And the same thing could be said of like the said principle of like, all right, well, there is some degree of specificity of what we do. Like if we don't sprint, is the person going to get faster? Like, no, like probably not. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, same thing with exercise physiology. Like I think one of the things that was tough for me before, like my time at IFAST is you don't really realize that you're, you're always working with competing adaptations. So if you have a better understanding of here is what my desired outcome is like, all right, this person just had a surgery. Their, their arm is 50% atrophied compared to the other side. Guess what? We need to do a bulk. Like we need to get some hypertrophy. We need to build up some actual connective tissue, or at least the ability to tolerate force through that tissue. So we can understand like, Hey, this is going to take at minimum probably six weeks, if not quite a bit longer, like to get back to where they were before, we're talking months to maybe even a year or more. Yep. So it's like having that understanding, like, what are my timeframes? What type of adaptation am I looking for? And also like, what are the competing demands between those adaptations? Cause we know it's like, we're only finite resources. I can't get super strong, super fast and really good endurance all at the same time. Like there's going to be, there's going to be some degree of give and take within those, within those realms. Did I give you the, Mike angry iFast internship speech when you started. <laughs> can you can you remind me because I may have blocked it out. <laughs> well, so so we had this phase where like Bill is Bill is uh, a candle, right? And interns are like a moth to the flame. <laughs> so everybody was like, "Oh, I just want to hang out with Bill and see what Bill's uh, doing." And I'm pretty sure I went through this period where it wasn't intentionally angry, but it's like, "Hey, look, that's great. If you want to come back and do a PT rotation later on, Fantastic. But right now, you're here to learn how to coach, to uh, write programs, to be able to be an effective communicator. Uh, so I just didn't remember if I gave that to your group or not, because there were some I had to be very direct about, hey, look, you got to learn this first. And then when you go be a PT, you're going to be even better at this. So I didn't know if yeah. I gave that to you or not. I, I think I heard that secondhand. I think you'd given that to like some of our previous generations and i think yes. we heard it through the grapevine of like okay. hey don't don't do that like don't cover <laughs> like i know there were times we were like like kicked out like hey go to the training floor right <laughs> yes yes yeah. no I, and honestly like in retrospect i appreciate that more because like i mean good old jay chong right like jay chong was was there during my undergrad internship and he was the one that like took the interns under his wing and said like hey like here's how to be a good person here's how to talk to somebody like get to know them get to know their family get to know their pet's name like if yep. if if you appreciate them as a person, like they'll, they'll, they'll give you a lot more from a, from an output standpoint. Yes, absolutely. So something else that I know you and I both agree on is the invaluable role of mentorship. So I would love to hear a little bit about mentors you've had along the way and how that mentorship process has helped you evolve, because there's really two parts to this, right? Like there's the mentors that you had but now you're mentoring others as well in your various positions. So I'd love to hear about that from your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the one thing that I always think of, and honestly, I don't, I don't know where this quote originates from, so I don't take credit for it. But like, have you heard the idea that like knowledge is the one entity that can be simultaneously gifted and maintained at the same time? Yes. Like, like I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but I love that. It's like yep. that to me is mentorship. Yep. Like, I, and I'll, I'll go on a minor tirade about our industry, but it's like. Do you know the current trend of our industry of like whether it's rehab or, or uh, 
preconditioning or whatever it may be. If it's almost like this idea of like withholding knowledge because they think they have like the secret sauce or they think yes. they have some kind of like better system or program or, or implementation than someone else. Like I think the best in our industry, regardless of which that is, are the people that are very open and very focal about just learning. And I, mean, I think an example, a great example is like you and your podcast, like you have people on and you have open, transparent conversations over how you think, why you make certain decisions and how you can be better. Yep. And I think that's, I think that's tremendous. Like, I think we're self-limited if we try to withhold our own, our own perceived knowledge versus having an open conversation. So from that standpoint, like I've been blessed with a lot of really good mentors. Like if I go back to literally in high school, um, a great guy by the name of Jim Nonamaker was the, the, uh, personal trainer who took me under his wing when I was a dumb high schooler who's just doing the same workout every day. So he was the one that introduced me to Olympic weightlifting, which I have now done for like over eight years. Right. So like that was kind of my starting point where it's like, get involved with like, Jim taught me the ropes. He taught me basic things about training. He taught me basic things about periodization and weightlifting. And then I was blessed with you guys at IFAST. So yourself, Bill Hartman, Ty Tyrell, Jay Chung, Lance Goyke, like I had that whole experience, which was also extremely beneficial because everyone saw things in a slightly different way. Like you had, I really appreciate it. Obviously like Bill is great at taking super complex things and boiling down into simple, like first principles. I think you are tremendous when it comes to like creating a, an intelligent program that has intelligent progression as well as like, how do we stem this with like their current capabilities? I think like that was extremely revolutionary for me. You talk about people like Jay who are excellent communicators. Like I think every mentor offers different things, yep. but it was cool because we got all of those at the same time. And then after that, I got hooked up with um, my coach, Steve Titus, who's an Olympic weightlifting coach in Buffalo. And he kind of taught me the ropes about weightlifting, like from a technique standpoint, from a programming standpoint, from a, a coach athlete standpoint, like having that give and take of what it feels like to be on kind of more the receiving end versus just telling people what to do. So it's like that, that built that kind of just that, that learned experience. Yeah. And then, of course, I had it through Rehab to Reform. I had Josh Funk, who's the CEO of R2P, Zach Baker, who's the head of their... Um, a sports residency program, Anthony Anarino, who I know you're aware of too, who works in the, at the Washington Wizards now. So it's like, I've had this like tremendous group of individuals. It's the whole idea of like, it takes a village. Like that's, that's how I feel. Like I am the byproduct of a village of people that took this, this poor little child who knew nothing and kind of built them up to this like slightly, um, you know, this, this developing professional is kind of how I feel. So uh, the other thing is, I'm sure you, you feel this, like, I feel like the more, the better your mentors that you have, the more willing and more desire you have to give back. Yeah, like I feel like sure. I want to be a better mentor because I experienced how good that, like I, I look back and I'm like, wow, that was phenomenal. Like this person took a lot of time, put a lot of effort into me. And because of that, I'm seeing the dividends. Like you don't see it right away. Of course you see it like years and like decades down the line, but that becomes your literally like your philosophy. So I like, I look at mentorship as it's developing a philosophy, but it's more so teaching someone how to learn versus like, I know Bill said this, like, I'm not going to spoon feed you. Like, I want you to figure, I want you to figure it out. I want you to struggle. I want you to make mistakes, but I want you to make intelligent mistakes. Like, I know you've heard it a million times, like the idea of like a safe to fail experiment, yep. like mentorship is essentially a prolonged safe to fail experiment. Like, let's put this person in a situation where they get a little bit uncomfortable and they've got to make decisions. They've got to, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but then they start to learn from it. And that's, that's very much kind of like the, the, the position I've taken when I've had students. Like I was very lucky to have, I think it ended up being like 15 PT students roughly in the wow. time I was at R2P. And that was over like a three and a half year period. 
Um, that doesn't count the other PTs that I get, got to interact with, my colleagues. Like it was truly like, if you think of like an exponential growth opportunity, that's kind of how I look back at that. And I say, wow, that was, that was really good. And now it's driven me into the realm of like, I enjoy teaching. I'm enjoying presenting a lot more. I'm enjoying like a little bit more of like the content creation. Like how do I create something that, that kind of takes all of these like disparate concepts and puts them together in something that's more tangible and something that's more digestible. So. I love it, man. That, that was a lot, but no. as you can see, I'm very, uh, I'm very uh, passionate about, about teaching and learning. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And, and I think one of the things that's great is when you've been a mentee, right? You take things, it's just like a coach. You take things mm -hmm. from coaches. And then when you become a coach, there's things that you take and you apply and make mm -hmm. your own. Same thing as a mentor now, right? And one of the things that I've told basically every intern, every coach that's been through our gym is like, look, nothing is going to make you get better faster than trying to take the concepts that you learn and then teach others, mm -hmm. right? It's one thing to just know them, right? And for them to make sense in your head, but then trying to distill it down and communicate it effectively to one of your peers and then be able to be challenged by your peers and have a, a good discussion yep. or like to def to uh, defend your stance or your position, that's really powerful too. So it's pretty cool that you're in that position now. And, and the one thing that I've, and again, I'm sure you're aware of this, but it's also you get better at identifying where in the process this person is. Uh -huh. Like when you learn, when you learn something, like I, I felt this way and I'm sure you probably saw like the, the deer in headlights look when you see a lot of like the, the, undergrad interns who are walking into IFAS the first day and they're just like, oh crap, what have I got myself into? <laughs> like I, yeah. I've, I've learned to look at it as like the early phase is like the, it's essentially like your initial knowledge acquisition and your initial consolidation process where you're just taking in this, this like this wave of information, but you don't know what's important. You don't know what's relevant. You don't know what needs to be like pruned down. And then as you get more experience, you get more data points, then you say, okay, now I can prune down this information and make it more specific to what's relevant to me and what my current model is. And like, that's very much like, you've got to meet the person where they're at. If you're dealing with somebody who's more experienced, they already have that, that kind of like mental framework. Now it's just a matter of like, how do I add to it or how do I help them refine it more because they're still putting in stuff that's otherwise superfluous. Absolutely. Okay. So this actually leads seamlessly into my next point where, you know, just kind of like we're, we're passionate about talking about mentorship. You and I are both also super into learning and as you alluded to refining your craft. So as someone like yourself, you're really just hitting your stride in the industry. You're really starting to leave a mark. What are some techniques that you're using to improve your own learning and refine your own craft? The the most recent one, like this is definitely some recency bias, um, but as I'm sure you've seen, like I'm purposely trying to read a lot more and I'm trying to read outside of like my immediate rehab, like PT type scope. So I've been being, or at least I've the last couple of weeks I've been good. I've been very diligent about reading three to four times a week, like every morning, like I'll literally like get up, I'll take the dog for a walk. I'll have some coffee. I'll sit down and I'll read no matter how I feel. I'll read for at least 30 minutes. If I feel good, I'll read for longer. And I think I've, I think I've even heard you talk about stuff like that before. Mm -hmm. And, and I've been trying to read like very more like a generalist, but things that are interesting to me. So like recently I've read books on business development. I've read books on a bunch of books on mental models, which is just fascinating to me. Like it's almost the idea of like, if I can become a better thinker, I'm always going to become a better problem solver. Yeah. So like that, that has just kind of resonated with me. Um, I've looked into a lot more of the, uh, like cognitive biases. I've looked into like psychology of high performance and even some like entrepreneurial type stuff just to get outside my comfort zone 
Because I think for a long time, I always had negative connotations with some of those things. I'm like, I'm not a business person. I'm not a salesman. But you start to realize like, well, you don't have to be like sleazy to understand how this can benefit us. Like you don't even have to be selling anything. Like I could be, I'm a PT. I I can want to help people and understand that if I communicate better, I'm probably going to be better at that. Like I could have all the tools in the world, but if I can't talk to this person, it doesn't matter. So I, I think, I think reading outside of my realm and just trying to become it's a, it, again, it's the instead of like an inch mi- uh, inch wide and a mile deep, I'm trying to be at least you know a couple yards wide and a mile deep. Like yeah. I'm just trying to give myself some breadth. Uh, but like in addition to that, it's like this. Have you heard of the idea of like Bayesian updating or Bayesian learning? I mean, I'm sure I have, but you're gonna have to refresh me on the the primary concept. So essentially, it's the idea that like every every decision that we make is based on a culmination of all of our past experiences. Okay. So like, sure. like your, it's, it's kind of like mental models. It's just, there's a, there's a different term for it, but it's essentially like the idea of like all of your experiential learning combined with your opinions, your biases, your, your preferences that all goes into your decision-making process. But the interesting thing is if you make a decision that you've made before and you get a different outcome, you have to ask yourself, like, why did that occur? So you kind of ask yourself, like, it's this idea of like updating your priors, Mm -hmm. which is to say, like, if I did the same thing I did before and I got a different outcome, you have to ask yourself, why did that occur? And that's when you start to hypothesize. So it's essentially the scientific method. It's say like, okay, I got a a different outcome than I was anticipating. So now I have to go back in this process and see, like, was this just was this a fluke? Was this something that I didn't do? Or do I just not have enough data points to make this useful? And early on, like that sort of stuff it honestly doesn't really matter early on because you just don't know what you don't know. But yeah. once you start to refine that and you get decades of experience, then it's like, okay, now it becomes more like a single point can be more useful because you know where it fits into the system. And it also allows opportunities to, as long as you're open-minded and, and you can embrace humility, it's like, okay, I was wrong at this point, but now I've updated that belief and now I'm making better decisions. So that that kind of goes in with with part of the refinement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so something that I've talked about extensively at earlier points in my career is this idea of taking time for reflection. Uh, and, and this is really hard when you're in the throes early in your career, right? A couple years in, you've seen su- some success. Maybe you're just grinding hours wise, right? Like you're on the floor, eight, 10, 12 hours, something like that, or you're opening a business. It's really hard to set aside time to do this, but it's also incredibly powerful because it forces you to sit down like you alluded to and say, okay, well, this has worked all these other times. Why didn't it work this time? Mm-hmm. Or I laid out this really good program to get X result. I didn't get X. Instead, I got Y. Like, what did I do wrong there? And it can seem time consuming. But I found in a lot of cases, some of the things that are deliberately time consuming are actually incredibly valuable, right? Like yep. writing yep. notes longhand instead of just typing them in their computer. Little things like that I have found over the years have really like locked in the learning process for me and allowed me to retain stuff a lot better than if I would just try and do whatever's fast. Yeah. I, to this day, I still remember, and I'm sure you probably still do it, the uh, the assignment in the undergrad internship of actually write a program and defend it. Oh, yeah. Like, I've I've used that, like, a, honestly, like a very similar rendition with, some of my, with a lot of my PT students, where I've literally had them write out, like, give me a four-week program. Like, what are we going to do with this person for the next four weeks? Okay, now defend every decision that you made. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And it's like, it's kind of what I what I said before. Like, they get really, you get really good at like cutting down the fluff. Mm-hmm. And you're saying like, okay, well, do you really need that? Or could you combine that with something else? Or are these conflicting demands? So it's like, all of a sudden you, you go from like this, they've got 16 things on their sheet to like, all right, now we've got six. We just yeah. need to do these exceptionally well. 
And I think like the same thing can be said about like writing out like your your mental model or your mind map. Like how do you make these decisions? And then you go back through and you say like, okay, I could just truncate this and just get rid of this step and it'll be a lot smoother. Or as you said, like, I don't think I appreciated reflection as much until like the last year for me, where now I'm trying to actually sit down and like take time, even in conversation. Like I've, I've taken a, a bunch of my students more recently and I literally said like, Hey, I want you to give me honest feedback about your experience. Like what are things that could have gone better? What are things that you weren't expecting? What are things that, that could have um, like that you found really helpful? And I've taken that, that feedback and I've tried to apply it again to like the mentorship model of, well, what, what can I offer better? Like clearly it's a, it's a two way street. Yeah. So I, I think the reflection point is huge. And I think especially younger coaches and clinicians, I think it's harder to do that because like you said, you're, you're kind of immersed in the insanity. You don't really have time to actually step back and embrace like it, it's just not as uh, it's not as cognitively capable at that point. Yes. Well, and I'll give you an actionable item here. If you're listening, maybe it doesn't work as well with gin pop clients because they tend to stick with you a little bit longer. With athletes, it's a little bit easier because you have like this predefined amount of time with them. But what I'll do in a lot of cases is maybe it's not after every session, but at the end of every off season, I'll make a page or two of just notes. Like, hey, what do I feel like worked really well with them? Uh, what things just flat out failed, whiffed, didn't work at all? Do I never want to do again? Um, and I think even if you just do that with your off season athletes or you just do it at certain like key points during the year, you can still get a lot of that benefit without feeling like, oh my gosh, I just trained for eight or 10 hours. Now I got to go journal for an hour. I don't expect that. <laughs> I'm a realist. But again, just doing that at certain points during your year, I think will make a big impact. And I love that too, because it makes sure you're on the same page. Like mm-hmm. if you had those experience with athletes where you think things are going great and they think otherwise, yes, or vice versa, <laughs> like, oh, yes. it's awesome. You're like, dude, like you're just not, like you're not getting you you're not getting uh, better at the rate that I were anticipating you to. And like, oh, but I feel awesome. Like, all right, that's great. Never mind. Yeah, 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 (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so something else that I've talked about in numerous shows, I've had a lot of like content matter experts on, is this idea of tech, and especially tech in sports, tech in rehab. So with that being said, I know this is something you're, you're getting into these days. What do you feel are some of the best uses of tech in the reconditioning space? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reflexive answer that, that I've heard a lot and I will continue to kind of uh, repurpose because I think it's useful is this idea of like what gets measured gets managed. Um, I think there is the downfall of like, okay, but you're always looking for something to measure, which becomes, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about, that becomes kind of a, a no man's land of like, all right, now we're putting our resources in the wrong place. Right. But I think I think using tech as a means to accumulate data that's hopefully reliable will influence decision making on the long term. Like the the thing that I'm currently looking at is like, I want to have multiple data points for the same person before I allow that technology to truly influence my decision making. Um, and hopefully we can talk about this because I think you recently got force plates, right? Mm-hmm. Or a little while ago. Yep. Like I, I'd love to talk about that because I've been I've been lucky enough to use uh, force plates resilient the last couple of months. And I've been able to kind of do a lot more trial and error of see like what sort of changes over time do we see with both injured and non-injured athletes, which is yep. pretty cool. But the, the question is essentially like, how can I best stay grounded in my use of technologies while allowing them to slightly influence my decision making? So I'll give you an example from like the rehab perspective. So at Resilient, we have a lot of like ACL athletes, oftentimes like youth collegiate level. And it's really cool because for, for that type of injury, you'll actually see like a fairly similar process and it's by no means linear. But the cool thing is like you'll initially see like this relative just 
reduction in bilateral force output. So even the uninjured leg is not going to be generating as much force or as quickly compared to the uninjured leg. And then what you'll see is like as they start to ramp up their like say their bilateral training, their bilateral jumping, their quote unquote good leg will actually get better. And their quote unquote bad leg will slowly get better. Like it'll creep up, but maybe not at the same rate. And like that's a fairly fairly reliable finding that we've seen so far. And then the cool thing is like when they get better, like think about the the order of operations when it comes to rehabbing an injury. It's like initially the force output's gonna increase, then eventually the rate of force is gonna increase, and then eventually their ability to store and utilize elastic energy is gonna increase. So it's basically like, okay, they can jump a little bit higher, but their force output maybe isn't that great or their reactivity isn't that great. Then they get better at quickly decelerating, but they're not very good at reversing that. And then finally they get better at decelerating and using that energy into the next rep. So it's, it's cool because you'll see like a change in both the metrics and also the strategy that they use. Like when they first learn how to jump off or they relearn how to jump off an injured leg, you'll see like this very stiff strategy where they barely want to bend their knee. They don't want to vertically displace themselves whatsoever. And they'll use like a very hip dominant. And if they can, they'll use an arm dominant strategy. But the cool thing is you can compare that side to side and you'll see if you get enough data points, you'll see hopefully some cool changes where first you'll see stiffness decrease. You'll see more displacement. You'll see more relative, um, like one, you should see height, but two, you'll see an increase in the amount of force they're producing at the bottom of the jump. And that's an indicator that they're getting better at actually generating force through their their desired muscle, which in this case is probably their quad as they're decelerating. And then it's like this, okay, now we just continue to add to this. Let's get better at quickly stopping. Let's get better at repurposing that. And you'll start to see their strategy changes. And then as their strategy changes, their force outputs change as well. So long-winded answer. From the standpoint of long-term, I think technology is phenomenal as long as you know you're measuring the right thing. So if we're talking about an injured population, ACL, ankle injury, hip injury, even maybe a back injury, it gives you some really useful metrics if it's relevant to what they have to do. So like something like force plates, where we're almost entirely measuring vertical power and vertical force output. We can do some lateral stuff, but unless you have a very fancy lab, you can't do like sprint analysis. You can't do other things that are that are more specific to their activity, but it's a proxy measure. So it gives us some information. If I see that their jump height is improving, that their RSI is improving, that their max force is improving, all of those things are trending in the right direction. Now I pair that with my just being a good coach or hopefully being a good clinician where I say, can they use that dynamically? Like, can they decelerate? Can they land from a jump? Can they do some introductory change of direction activities? Can they do plyo type stuff? And you just pair like what you're seeing with the metrics with what you're seeing as a coach or clinician. And I think that's the beauty of technology is like that we all have shiny object syndrome. We're like, oh, this is really cool. This is new. But then the question becomes like, all right, but is it actually changing what you're doing? Or is it just a supplement to what you're already doing to make sure you don't miss something? Yeah. Because more often than not, you'll have a really good athlete who can fake it with a different strategy. But then when they're in a position where they can't use that strategy, now they don't have anywhere to go. Or now their performance is impaired. Or maybe it's not an injury risk, but hey, they can't push off their right leg. Like they can't push off their left leg or they can't change direction. It's like they're great when they're sprinting, but when it comes to actually breaking down and stopping, now they can't do it. But oh, look at their force plate data. That also coincides with that information. So now you can make these more intelligent decisions because it's like a culmination of data points. Like we talk about, like for us, we talk about return to sport testing. If I've never worked with an athlete before and all I have them do is a force plate jump, it gives me information, but does that make me comfortable saying, yeah, you can go back to sport? Like, like there might be an instance where that test makes me say no right away. Like if somebody yeah. jumps and they're like 50% output on one leg versus the other, I've got concerns. But if they're like, you know, 90 plus percent, I'm like, it could be good. It could be bad. I don't know yet. Like I need more information. Yep. So like 
one question I have for you is like, I know a while ago, like the huge thing was like HRV and all this readiness me- metrics. Yep. How, how is that transition? Like wh- what have you seen when it comes to that? Because like, I still, I still utilize it sometime, but I'm not in the, I'm not in the, the scope right now where I think that's, that's relevant for my population. So how do I use HRV? Yeah. Is it, is it still big for you is probably the better question. Uh, it, it can be. Um, the hardest thing with that is consistency in collecting data points. Um, yep. And Joel and I have talked about this numerous times. It's like, uh, it's really hard to get people to sit down, even though it's only two and a half minutes, and do their <laughs> HRV every morning. Uh, so that's where, okay, maybe if I don't use HRV or they're not consistent, maybe I can use a jump test instead, right? Yep. So I can track yep. readiness that way. Um, and so that's kind of where I see myself trending more, at least mm-hmm. for now, um, and with the athletes that I have, because most of the guys and gals that I work with, they have no issue jumping every day. Now, I know you get into some of these environments or certain athletes, they don't want to jump every day, mm-hmm. right? Or they're not going to give you their best effort. Um, but that's, I think, kind of more where I'm going to trend. I still do my HRV every morning because uh, mm-hmm. I think there's value in it and more for me just from a general health perspective than a tracking of readiness perspective. I think it's valuable. Long-winded answer on my part now. I think it's valuable, (laughs) but I'm also not so sure that I can get people to do it on a consistent basis to where it's repeatable and I can use it to make better decisions. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And like, it kind of comes back to going back to the technology question. It's essentially like, what is going to give me the most bang for my buck in the least amount of time and with the least amount of effort? Yeah. Like if I have athletes who are expecting, like it doesn't even have to be force plates. It could be like a regular like jump test, just a, a vertical jump for height after their warmups. That yeah. can be like, commonly that's used as a proxy measure for the readiness. Yeah. If you have force plate data, you can be like, all right, if you drop below a certain threshold, guess what? You're, you're going a little bit lighter today. We're not going to do that high, high intensity day that we were planning for. Or like using a gym wire, like, yeah. Hey, guess what? Like your, your counter movement jump or your, your squat speed for this given day is way below the threshold we were anticipating. So let's, let's make some adjustments. Like in that sense, it's, it's always a supplement. Like even then, like they walk in, somebody's dragging their shoulders down. You already know that they're probably not feeling great. Now it's just a matter of you have something to back up that, that other more uh, like subconscious information. See, that's the big thing for me. It's that objectivity and Mm -hmm. you can, you can, to the best of your ability, take feelings out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was at the UFC place a while back, the Performance Institute and Duncan French, who I knew 20 years ago when I was at Ball State, he leads that whole kind of department now. But he wore a a T-shirt that day and it said data are greater than feelings, you know, (laughs) like the greater than sign. Like that's what it comes down to. Right. It's now it's not. Oh, well, I feel this. And the athlete feels that it's like, look, this is very clear. Like. You're putting 50% more force through your left leg versus your right. Or, hey, man, that's great. You hit 325 on bench at this bar speed last week. This week, you're at 285. Like, if you can drive that number up and still hit that speed, great. But if you can't, this is where you're at today. And I think that's one of the best things is starting to try and remove some of that subjectiveness from our training decisions and make it more reliant on objectivity so we kind of make sure we're hitting the mark every day when we're in the gym or when we're assessing our clients and athletes. Yep. And I think that leads back to specificity too. Of like you've decided on what you're trying to improve. And if they're not meeting a certain metric, like they might be getting stronger finger quote. But the question yeah. is like, is that, is that actually in the realm of speed that you actually need? Or is that desired adaptation that you need? Because they can grind it out. But yep. is, that, is that where we want to be for today? Probably not. Absolutely. Okay. So on the flip side of this, what do you see as some of the limitations when it comes to tech or, or issues that you have with it right now. 
I mean, the, the biggest one, and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree to this, is paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. If I have so many data points, like I, I, I'm lucky enough to have a, a handful of uh, colleagues that work in the NBA right now, and they have access to all the technologies in the world. Like mm-hmm. they don't have a shortcoming when it comes to tech. Like they can do all sorts of things. They can do isokinetic testing. They can do force plate. They do all sorts of readiness measures. They have all sorts of access to like the, the best meds. Uh, sports med staff you can imagine but now the question is you have so much stuff muddying the water that you have to navigate the noise and you have to say like okay like this guy's jump height is down by 10 percent. but um, is that because maybe he slept like crap is it because he had a hard practice is it because he had an injury is it because like something else is going on is he just not motivated like there, there's so many yeah. possible things it's like if that's where you have to talk to the person in front of you, right? Like the, the information is great, but I think it comes back, like I'll bring this full circle. It comes back to like, what is your willingness to be a good scientist? Like if you, if you are willing to take, like you're taking consistent numbers regardless, but if you're willing to be a good scientist and kind of piece apart like the causation of what might be implying that, then you can potentially make better decisions. And it also goes back to like, I wouldn't put all of my stake in one measure. I would rather take a slew of measures, kind of like you said. Like if, if one thing, like one thing could be HRV. Like, okay, their, their HRV that morning was crap. They're walking in, they're saying they feel really sore. And their jump testing was abysmal. Like, all right, those are three quick indicators that maybe they're not going to have a great day today. Like, we have to do something else. Or, like, look at catapult data. It's like, all right, if they have a huge spike in training volume, like, go to acute to chronic workload type stuff, like, I might be a little bit more hesitant to add more insult to injury to this individual. So, like, I think it's the biggest thing is figuring out, like, how can we modify, how can we kind of piece apart the noise versus how do we identify metrics that are truly relevant to this person? And the downfall of that is it's so activity dependent. Like if you take a basketball player, like a metric that matters to an NBA player is totally different than what matters to my high school soccer player, right? Like the demands are different. The testing is different. The intensity is different. And even the frequency of how often I do that is going to be different. So, so like, I think the technology is great. Like I have absolutely no problem with tech. It's just a matter of like, we almost have to limit ourselves into making very large scale decisions on incomplete and uncertain information. But the more information we accrue and the more of these like trend sets that we start to see, like if you work with the same athlete for like, say a year, two years, three years or longer, you're going to have a very good idea of like, hey, in the past, when you had this like big drop in HRV, like you got sick like the next day or, oh, you had this huge drop in force output, but it makes sense because you just, you just traveled for like five days. So it's like, you can start to make more safe assumptions as you accumulate more data over the long haul, but you need to be looking at the same relative metrics. Um, and I, I've definitely fallen into the, the category of like, oh, if we just have like a, a perfect periodized, periodized program where you just add consistent volume and intensity, they'll be fine. And then, of course, you know, that falls on its head and, and you've got to start from <laughs> pick up the pieces. So it's right. like I think it's it's figuring out like we're not going to hang our hat on a single metric, but how can we make like a kind of like a slew of tests that are going to be most helpful for this particular individual is my my long winded answer. Yes. And I think if I can add one piece to this that's been helpful for me over the last, say, six to nine months, because we added in over the summer the extra fly, so the flywheel training, we've added in the force plates. A common theme that I've found as I start to incorporate these things is to narrow your scope and your focus early on. Uh, so, for instance, I got the extra fly. I'm like, dude, this thing's going to be amazing, right? And I, I get it in. And then I start looking at all the activities. There's like 60 or 80 YouTube videos of activities I can do. And I'm like, oh, my God, now I'm overwhelmed, right? So instead of trying to do 80 activities, I narrowed it down to like four, right? I'm going to get really good at these four. It's just like when you start in the gym, right? 
You don't go to the yep. gym and think about, man, there's a million activities or exercises I just learned on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, wherever. I'm going to try them all. You try like three or four. Same thing with the force plates. Instead of looking at all of the 60 metrics I can look at on a counter movement jump, I've deliberately blacked out like 50 of them. So now I'm only looking at 10. Yep. <laughs> right? Like just. Yep. No, and, I, I'm totally with you. <laughs> and as I get better at it, then I can go back and I can look at those those 60 data points that Hawking gives you. Like that's amazing and that's cool. And there's going to be a time and a place where I might want some of those things. But at least early on to avoid the overwhelm and try and narrow my scope, I'm going to focus on these 10, really understand what they're telling me. And then when and if necessary, I'll add from there. Yep. I, I went through that exact same thought process when I started using the force plates consistently because my mindset initially was like, oh, I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to figure out what, what each of these things me meant. And very quickly, I was like, I have no idea what this means. Like, I have an idea of like what the metric means, but how does this apply to this person? Yes. So I did the same thing of like, all right, I've hit, basically talked to Trevor. I was like, which metrics do you look at most consistently? He, he gave me like five. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start with those and then we'll start adding up from there. So I, I love that. I love that process. Awesome. Okay. Big question time, my guy. Mm -hmm. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Mike Reinhardt one piece of advice, what would it be? So I've, I've heard a lot of people answer this question, and I've thought about it quite a bit myself. The, the, the true honesty is, like, I don't think I would change anything because the whole, like, kind of going back to the butterfly effect yep. of if you change your past experiences, would it really lead you to where you are today? Like, I have, I have no problem with, with where I've gotten. Like, I'm, I'm very happy, and I want to continue this, this kind of pattern of growth and expansion. But... I look back and it's like everything that I did led me to where I am today, whether it was a good decision or a bad decision. Um, if I could have done other things that wouldn't have changed my trajectory, I definitely would have started, I would say like learning outside my my scope and my interest at an earlier age would have been the biggest one. Um, I definitely love reading, but unfortunately during most of my academic career, I wasn't really reading for enjoyment. Like I was just kind of getting through and like sopping through the textbooks and like I, I would definitely go back and actually embrace that because I feel like I would be, you know, a couple levels up if I had done that earlier. But in the grand scheme of things, like I'm, I'm very happy with, again, the, the experiences I've had and what I've been able to do with the opportunities I was provided. So I, I won't be somebody who wants to go back and change it all. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so last but not least, lightning round, four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. So beautiful. Number one, we all know learning goes best with coffee, and it looks like you've really leveled up your coffee game lately. So talk to me. From the shots you're posting on IG right now, are you making those? Are you going to a coffee shop? Talk to me about the coffee game. So the, the, first off, they're delicious, and second <laughs> off, I cheat because I have an espresso. So like, I do have I do have a legit coffee station in my apartment. Yeah. That is like, I have a French press, I have an air press, um, I have pour over, and I have my espresso. For the sake of most of my mornings, like Nespresso, if you don't have one, you get like all sizes from like a one ounce shot up to like a fourteen ounce coffee, and the flavors are amazing. Okay. So I literally do like Nespresso takes like sixty seconds, and I'll usually like froth like do some kind of like a milk froth or something like that yeah. and I'll put it on top. And that's my, my, the, my morning reading ritual that I mentioned, that's what I do right before I read. So okay. I'll literally make my coffee, I'll sit down, I'll start sipping it and I, I dive into a good book. So Respect. strongly recommend. Respect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I looked at the Nespresso. I went with uh, it's called a Terra cafe. If you've mm. never seen that, they're pretty sweet too. Ooh, I'll have to look into that. I'm a big fan. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Okay. Number two, how's the Olympic lifting going these days i remember you were pushing some big weights in the ifast days but where are you at now yep um so I've, I've still been doing it fairly consistently like covid threw a wrench in things sure. so i'll actually be doing my first uh 
first competition in quite some time in uh, early February, which I'm looking forward to. The uh, my saving grace from like stress of life has always been training. So no matter what, like through all of COVID, I was still lifting, I was still training. There were definitely phases where I was just like a you know maintenance phase of like I want to move, I want to feel good, but I'm not ready to push heavy numbers right now. Yep. So hopefully, if all things go well, the next few months I'll be I'll be getting back up there. But it's definitely something that I, I don't envision going anywhere anytime soon. Um, even as I get older, it's like even if I can do it part time and, and do other more like general preparation type stuff, like get into powerlifting, oh, maybe not CrossFit, but yeah. <laughs> powerlifting, like that sort of realm. Like I'm, I'm happy to stay in some kind of iron game. Like I still love the community. I love the sport. Um, I've done some more coaching uh, more recently. So like that's something I want to continue to work with for sure. I love it, man. OK, number three. How does it feel to now be a official member of the resilient physical therapy team? <laughs> it's going back to nostalgia. So I remember, um, I can't remember what year it was. You remember like the, the early physical prep summits? Oh like yeah. There, there were, there were a couple, I think it was in Indy. There were a couple that I remember like Doug was speaking at. I know you were speaking at there. There were a couple other people. And I remember like, I think Doug was giving some presentation on like working with um, like tactical athletes or something oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember, I remember he was speaking. I was like, this dude is so freaking smart. And then I like said hi to him afterwards. And now it's like to come full circle. It's like, all right, well now I'm working in the company that he helped co-found. Yeah. And it's like, he's, he, he along with Trevor and Greg are colleagues. And it's like, like I have the utmost respect for them, but it's so cool to see like how all of that, like, like that networking, that hard work and that, that like common mindset has kind of helped me get to where I am. So the, the short answer is I love it. Like I, I love the community. I love the the quest for like continued growth and knowledge. Um, and honestly, they've just, they've got, they're great people and they have great facilities. So yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't ask for a better spot right now. Yeah. They're awesome, man. Happy for you. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Mike Reinhardt, man? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? Yeah, so obviously, like I'm, I'm happy to be kind of getting settled in the in the Jersey area at my my the position I started. But the the biggest thing coming up is I said I'm an active member of RTP Academy. Um, we're putting together we have a couple in person courses and we're building out some online courses. So I am in the development stage of a essentially like a return to lifting course that I'm putting together. I want to take essentially all the stuff we talked about today of like how do we reverse engineer that process? How do we take somebody through like this like getting them back into some kind of strength training, getting them back into strength sports or getting them back into like this higher force, higher impact type activity. I'm going to, in the process of creating a course that will actually go through that kind of like start macro and then go into the weeds of program design, strength conditioning, essentially things that when I went through PT school, I wish I could have had mm -hmm. or things that as a PT student who doesn't have a strength background, I would like to be able to offer. Right. So it's essentially like almost like the cheat codes of how do I accelerate this growth a little bit? Um, that's, that's kind of what I'm putting together because one, I want to give back and two, I, I enjoy teaching and I enjoy like helping others learn. So I want to kind of have that as a starting plate place and then build that out and kind of uh, refine it over time as well. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, Mike, dude, it's been great catching up with you today. Love chatting. Where can my listeners find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Uh, the easiest thing is probably social media. Um, Mike R underscore Oli DPT is my uh, Instagram handle. And anything through R2P Academy or Resilient Performance Physical Therapy, um, those are both phenomenal resources. Um, and they're all very collaborative. So like, I'm not, I'm not a sole provider from any of those things. Like RTP Academy just came out with a, a concussion course. Uh, they have mentorship courses. They have um, lower extremity testing courses. So it's like, it's very much a, a conglomerate of different providers and different um, people giving their perspective, which I think is, is a really cool resource. I love it, man. Well, Mike, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really great catching up today.
thank you so much for having me. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Dr. Mike Reinhardt. Really hope you enjoyed it. Mike's somebody I think very highly of. Obviously, very, very sharp young man. I love his commitment to learning, to the mentorship process. Incredibly well-spoken for somebody at his age. And I just always try and remind myself, like, if you ever want to hate on somebody for being young, man, I got a lot of opportunities when I was young, whether it was speaking whether it was writing for platforms like T Nation and Elite. So I'm a firm believer, regardless of somebody's age, you can learn something from them, especially somebody like Mike who has dedicated themselves to the art of learning and refining the learning process. So really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, do me one small favor. If you're not already subscribed to the show, go right now today and do that. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, that's it, man. 2022 is a wrap. Uh, Hope you had an amazing year. Like I said, it's been a great year for the podcast. Really looking forward to 2023 because I think it's going to be even better. My commitment to the show has never been stronger, and I hope that you continue to enjoy and support the show into the new year as well. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week in the new year with a new episode. Take care.